promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. Don't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. Well, even though we already confessed our sins, I have to confess mine to you. I have to apologize to many of you. Uh, I, I forget names. I'm sorry. Or I might confuse you with someone else. I'm sorry for that, too. Uh, I, I, I guess I could blame it on, on COVID brain, those of us who have survived this illness. We get this fog that we, we tend to forget the things that we should remember and remember the things that we should forget. So it's kind of a horrible hell that we live in. But I need your help this morning. I think you can help me with this problem that I have. So what I want you to do, on the count of three, you're going to say your name. Just first names. And keep it G, please. I do not want you to say the name your wife calls you sometimes when you are in trouble. Or the name she uses when she comes to see me because she's mad at you. So on the count of three, everybody say your first names loud and proud so that the Mormons can hear it across the street. One, two, three. All right, now I'll remember. All your names are... <laughs> Just kidding, I won't remember. But your name's important to you, right? If your name is Kathy and I call you Bob, that's a problem. Or am I wrong? Could be. It is 2021. But that's a problem. Your name is important to you. It, it means something. Your first name says who you are. Tells me who you are. Your, your last name tells us a few different things about you, either whose you are, uh, uh, where you are from, or what you used to do. That's the way last names used to work, right? Take Pastor Chris, for instance. His last name is Madsen. So you can go back in his history, and at some point, someone in his family was named Mats. Just like in, in my mom's side of the family, my grandpa's last name is Johnson. You can go back in our history and find somebody in Sweden named Jan. Makes it very easy, those of us who are Scandinavian, to have these last names and whose we are. Uh, or my, my grandma, my, my dad's side, last name is Van Schoenhoven. It's not German, it's Dutch. Uh, but all it means is that our family comes from the village of Schoenhoven in the Netherlands, right? Van Schoenhoven. Uh, or, or my wife, she was born in Germany. All her family's back there, except for her mom is still in Minnesota. Uh, their last name is Schreiner. Anybody know what that means? Carpenter or cabinet maker. Yes, it means that at some point in, in Carrie's family's life, maybe back in the Middle Ages, more than likely, they were cabinet makers or carpenters. Just like if any of you have the last name of Smith or used to or you know somebody who did, what did they do for a living at one point? Blacksmith. So, so you could have two Johns in one village, but one is John Baker, one is John Smith. You find out that John is, just happens to be the baker, and John Smith just happens to be the blacksmith. Makes it very easy. Tells, tells me what you do or, or who you are. Well, God has a name too, right? He gives us that name. It means something to him, and he wants it to, to mean something to us. So where if someone gets your name wrong or they forget your name altogether, you may feel as though you mean nothing to them. Trust me, that's not the case. You mean everything to me. Um, 
But he gives us his name so we know who he is and so we know who we, we call upon. So we got God, Father, Lord, Christ, Holy Spirit. He has all these other names too. Most of us have seen like the posters, right? Names of God, right? These, these different names that give characteristics, tell us about this God that we pray to. So for instance, in Isaiah 63, it's one of the first places we hear him talked about as Abba, as Daddy, in Isaiah 63. Or Psalm 8, Adonai, the Lord, the King. Or El Elyon, God Most High. That comes from when Melchizedek comes out to, to greet Abraham, and it says that, that he is priest to God Most High, priest to El Elyon. Or we have El Elam, the Eternal God. Elohim, which is the name used for him pretty much up until uh, the Exodus, which is the name of all-powerful one, Creator, or we can all thank Amy Grant, El Shaddai. Right? Anybody? El Shaddai? Yeah, yeah. Now you're going to be singing that song all the rest of the day. Congratulations. You're welcome. Um, but El Shaddai, we think of it that it means the Almighty One or the All-Powerful One, but it actually means the All-Sufficient One. So we call him El Shaddai, the one who's sufficient, the one who's enough for us. And then, of course, we have Yahweh or Jehovah in Exodus, the I Am, the name given to Moses to tell the Israelites who sent you. It's the same thing as saying the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one that has always been. Or Jehovah Jireh. That comes from Genesis 22, one of my favorite passages to read to my kids at night where Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac. And he takes Isaac up on the mountain and, and God stops him. It was a test and he provides a ram in the thicket and it says that Abraham calls that place Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide. And then a, a proverb comes out of that that says, God will provide on his holy mountain. What a foretaste for us. It's like God saying, yeah, and this guy Jesus is going to come and provide something for you on a holy mountain. That's crazy. And then you have the Lord who sanctifies us. The Lord, our banner. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. And then one of my favorite ones too, Jehovah Tsukenu, comes out of Jeremiah 23, one of those Advent lessons that we often get, the branch that will come up, the righteous branch that will come up out of the stump of Jesse and his name will be the Lord, our righteousness. Not my righteousness, not your righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Our righteousness being attached to this God that we are following, that has come to us. And so, this morning, our task is to talk about, well, we say, hallowed be thy name. What are we talking about there? We, we pray it at least once every week in this service. And last week, we had our Father in heaven. Well, this week, we get our first petition which is, hallowed be thy name, or may your name be holy. And just like good Lutherans, as our catechetical people that we are, we have our catechism up in front of us. And so what we're going to do, just like you shouted out your names, I will read off uh, the what does this mean, and then you'll tell me what this means. And then you're going to stop there. We're not going to move to the next question yet. We'll see if you can follow directions. Okay. So hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? Let's read it together. God's name is indeed holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be hallowed also among us. God's name is holy indeed in itself. What does that mean? It means 
that whether you like it or not, God's name is special. You can profane it, you can forget it, you can cast it aside, doesn't matter. God's name is going to be special, it's going to be set apart, it's going to be holy, is what that means. So when we pray in the Our Father, we're actually wanting to make sure that that doesn't happen that we don't profane it, that we fulfill the second commandment of keeping the Lord's name properly. And so we are praying to God that that might happen. We ask that God's name would also be special in and among us, that, that he'd be special to us. Why? Well, because of what he has done and because of who he is. And so we have the second question, how is God's name kept holy, or how does this happen? Let us read that together. When the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as God's children lead holy lives in accordance with it, this grant us, dear Father in heaven. But whoever teaches or lives otherwise than God's word teaches profanes the name of God among us. From this preserve us, Heavenly Father. Well, how does it happen? Well, it happens when the story of God is told to you, and it's told rightly. When you are told of why you shall keep his name holy. And why? Because of what he's done. Because of who he is because of the fact that he is the Lord, your righteousness, because of the fact that he is the Lord who provides for you, because of the fact that he is the one who is all sufficient for you. Exodus, or Ezekiel, one of my favorite books in the Bible outside of the New Testament. It's probably my favorite book in the Old Testament. I love it. We hardly ever get any readings of it from, for the lectionary, and so I picked this lesson just because I can. And so Ezekiel chapter 20. In verse 9, as well as in verse 14, verse 22, quite a few different places, God says, I acted for the sake of my name. He says, it's here in in Ezekiel 20 that he's recounting of what it is that he's done. The the elders come to Ezekiel uh, uh, to find out what the heck is going on. And God has to recount to them of what it is that he's done, of who he is. And so he starts out by saying, I came and spoke to you in Egypt. Even when you did not know who I was, and I declared myself to you with a possessive, I said, I am the Lord, your God. I made you mine. I became yours. It became this marriage thing. We're we're in this together. You are mine. I am yours. And he speaks this to Israel while they're in Egypt, even before he's brought them out. That's where we get the I am, the, the Yahweh. And he speaks this to us, right? To out of his word when we read it, hopefully. And if not here, trust me, this is part of the reason why I like the fact that we have communion every Sunday. If the sermon is bad, like this morning, we have the table. So if I don't give you your Jesus out of here, you get your Jesus from there, right? Because we hear about what God has done. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you giving himself to you. And then he speaks to them, and he, and he swears to them while they're in Egypt, I am going to bring you out of here. 
I'm going to bring you out. All you need to do is cast aside all those other idols, all those other fake gods, all those gods that did not listen to you when you cried out to me. All those gods that are not going to save you. You throw them aside. I'm going to take you out of here, whether you like it or not. They don't listen, of course. They grumble the whole time. They grumble with Moses on the way to the Red Sea. They grumble with Moses after the Red Sea. They grumble with Moses before they even get into the promised land. All these things. And yet God says, I wanted to smite them. I wanted to kill them. I wanted to destroy them. But for the sake of my name, I acted. For the sake of my name, I acted. Why? Because God's name is always attached to redemption. God's name is always attached to forgiveness. God's name is always attached to the bringing of people out of shame, out of sin. Just as he swears to you that on the cross, I brought you out. Just, that, just as he sent to us Jesus, who, whose name, Yeshua, Jesus means God saves. Well, he does exactly that, right? As it says in Matthew 1, you're going to call him Jesus because I'm going to save my people from their sins. God doing his work of redemption, all for the sake of his name, his reputation. So I wonder, church, has God done that for you this morning? Has he? When you hear the old, old story, is it your story? The working of God in you, the working of God for you, the working of God to bring you out, or are you still stuck in a world in which you hold on to your name, your reputation, your righteousness, and try to save yourself? Arthur Miller, 1953, wrote a play called The Crucible. Many of you probably... A large percentage of you in this room probably had to read it in high school, I'm guessing. I don't think it's on the the curriculum anymore because it was written by a dead white man. But it takes place during the Salem witch trials. It's this allegory for the McCarthyism of the day in the 50s. Uh, So 1692, 1693, a bunch of Puritans, Quakers, that sort of thing. And Abigail Williams, who's one of the main characters, she and some other girls are caught dancing naked in the forest. And, and witchcraft is assumed. And so lies spread, stories grow, kind of spreads like any other gossip or hearsay of today, except we don't, they didn't have the social media of the day. They just kept on rolling with it. And eventually everyone's accusing everyone else of, of working for the devil. You learn just by listening and, and watching that Abigail Williams had had an affair with a farmer named John Proctor. And they did everything to try and hide this. She was the, a servant in their house. She got booted out, wanting to save face. Well, Abigail Williams was there in the forest, actually wanting to try and cast a spell on John Proctor's wife, Elizabeth, in order that she might die because she wanted John all to herself. As the play says, she wanted to be able to dance with John on her grave. Well, things don't go according to her plan. Because John Proctor ends up getting accused of witchcraft, too. So much so that he's accused of of harnessing the devil. And so he gets imprisoned. 
in order to save him, as, as there seems to be almost this growing insurrection because so many people are getting accused and imprisoned, the, the, the authorities send to John his wife, Elizabeth, to try and get her to get him to confess. Because if he can confess, he won't be hanged. And while she's there, they have one of the first honest conversations they've ever had, and she forgives him his sin. And she just asks him, forgive yourself, please. And so John writes out his confession, and he goes to the judge. And this doesn't go according to plan either, because he finds out that he needs to sign it, and then it's going to be posted on the church door as an example for everyone, that everyone might confess so that they won't be hanged, so that all the problems in the village will come to an end. Well, let's hear what he had to say in his own words, sort of. Because it is my name, because I cannot have another in my life. These are the words of John Proctor there. John had attached everything of his righteousness to his name, and he had spent the entire play trying to hide his unrighteousness, not wanting it to come out of his previous sin with Abigail, and now he finds himself caught up in all the sin of all the world, basically, which was destroying him of the world that he knew. And so he feels like he's losing himself, and yet he attaches what must remain of his righteousness to his name. He wants to hold on to his reputation, his name. Well, he hangs. Not a very happy story. Sin had caught up to him. But I wonder for us, church, how many of us find ourselves there getting face-to-face with the possibility of our sin coming back to get us and thinking, well, I need my name. I need to do everything I can to rescue myself so I have some sort of reputation, hold on to whoever it is that I am so that I can declare who I am to the world. Well, we come to Christ We come to God and we find ourselves meeting the one who has come to save us from our reputations, to save us from our sin and our shame. But how often do we want to hold on to that? How often do we want to hold on to our reputation? I was thinking about it, high school yearbooks, senior section, right? 
It, I don't know if they do this still or not, but you'd have the section, most likely to, right? And there'd be all these pictures of different people, most likely to be in the movies, most likely to be president, most likely to blah, 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 blah. I, have, I was thinking about it the other day. I have no clue whether anybody fulfilled those tasks in their lives. I don't know. I haven't kept in touch with, I had 700 people in my graduating class. I, I don't know. But I can look at the pictures, and I can tell you based on reputation from high school who was said to have slept with the whole football team, who got busted for underage drinking, who now is in prison for almost killing the uh, mom of one of my friends. I can look through there, and I can tell you of their reputations. Not often very good ones, although I can tell you who the valedictorians are and, and those sorts of things. But I think the problem for us is that Christ comes to us and he speaks to us and he says, you must die and be born again. And we cry out, no, my name, I must keep it. He comes to us and says, come after me, pick up your cross, follow me to death and you will live. And we say, no, me, myself, I, my name. In the Book of Common Prayer from 1662, and yes, I know it's Anglican, and yes, most of you who follow my podcast know I love it. Uh, it has a catechism in it, uh, kind of like ours, but not really. Uh, the first question in it that is asked of the catechumen is, what is your name? And the respondent is supposed to say their name. And then the next question is, how did you get this name? And they say, from my godparents, in my baptism wherein I was made a member of Christ, a child of God, inheritor of the kingdom. And it's not much different than our own baptismal liturgy. In holy baptism, our gracious Heavenly Father liberates us from sin and death by joining us to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are born children of a fallen humanity. In the waters of baptism, we are reborn children of God and inheritors of eternal life. By water and the Holy Spirit, we are made members of the church, which is the body of Christ. What comes to you in Christ in your baptism, what comes to you in God in those waters, what comes to you in that promise is a new name, new life. That's the symbolism when they ask, what is your name? And they say, well, it's this. Where'd you get that name? From my godparents, my baptism. It, was, it used to be standard that you'd get a new name upon baptism. Where the old has died, the new has come. All the old names, all the reputation, all of that stuff is gone. Drowned, dead, buried in the grave with Jesus. And you have been raised to new life with him. Newness. New things. Hear the gospel again really quick. This one is normally read on the second Sunday of Easter every year. So you probably all know it by heart. But remember, he enters into the room and says, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. I've always stood by the notion that Thomas is not a doubter in the sense that we think he is. We often think that he doesn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. No, I think he believed that. I think more so what he was worried was that the Jesus that rose from the dead was not the Jesus he needs. He wanted the wounds. He wanted the crucifixion. He wanted the crucified Jesus, the Jesus who saves his people from their sins. 
And then we're told by John here at the end, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in your name? Life in my name? Life in his name. As Christians, we hold to the truth in our baptism that we're in the will. We've been adopted. We have a new name given to us by God, that we are his and he is ours. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're begging that the family name might be lifted up, that Christ might be exalted, that God will be lifted high, that God in Christ will be set apart for us, that we might know for certain that we are captured in his name, in him, that all of our names, all the reputations, both good and bad, that come with them are gone now. And now we cling to Christ, the one who is always for us, who is ours evermore. Thanks be to God. Amen.